Hi, this is April Mazza. And this is Christy Showman Fair. And this podcast is Overdue. Where friends and colleagues, librarians, librarians, and each episode we talk about books we're reading, things we're loving, and library advice we're giving. Good morning, April. Good morning, Christy. How it's are good you? good to see you. Yeah, you too. I'm good. It's Sunday. Again, I think this is our new our new recording time, Might right? Be our new her new normal. Yeah. <laughs> Does everyone hate that phrase now? Oh, yeah. But it's true. Do you want to start us off with, with what book you I would love about? to. <laughs> so last week Wednesday? Wednesday, I think. I went into the office and uh, we get still get books sent to the office from time to time. Um, new books from um, publishers, generally children's. So picture books, chapter books, YA books, um, so that we can review them. We can share them with our, with libraries. And um, since I don't go to the office every day anymore, um, usually there's like a pile of boxes to open. And so on Wednesday, there were a few and I opened, actually, the best part is that I open up the boxes and it's like this huge box with lots of like packing material mm-hmm. and two like books. One book. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but in one of those boxes where it had two books in it uh, was this picture book called Love in the Library by Maggie Tokuda Hall and illustrated by Yas Imamura. And um, I'm always drawn to books about books, meta books, mm-hmm. or books about libraries <laughs> for, for a short while well maybe a few years I actually was collecting them so if I saw one in a bookstore I would buy it even if I didn't ever read it or it was a grown-up book and there was no way I was ever going to read it <laughs> um, uh, just because I thought it was fun and interesting and um, so I was originally drawn to this one because it said library in it and then looking at the cover I will show it to April it is a man and a woman Ooh. in a library and um, it's watercolor and gouache um, art and the tones are very kind of muted um, browns with a, a little bit of splash of red here and there. Um, but my first thought was, I was like, they're adults, right? It's a picture book about adults. Weird. Okay. Um, and so, but then I read it and it is lovely and perfect and important. Um, this is the story. Oops, I just hit the mic. Was that loud? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. What is this, amateur hour? It is. It is absolutely <laughs> amateur hour. Um, so this is the story of Tama and George Takuda. And um, it's a true story, which I didn't know until I got to the very end uh, when I read the author's note. Uh, and it takes place in the Japanese prison camp, Minidoka, which is in, Ohio, in Idaho. And um, Toma, or Tama, Tama, not Toma, Tama, um, the young woman, is um, works in the library at the incarceration camp. She uh, doesn't really know anything about libraries, but this has become her job. Um, she's been, you know, they don't really say how long she's been in the camp um, when she works there, but says Tana had taken the job in the library because she liked books. She didn't know how to be a librarian, but that didn't matter. In the camps, people did the jobs that needed doing, and that was that. And it, this tells the story of how Every day, Tama is helping people find stories that help them get through being in a prison camp and how those stories are constant in a way, but also miraculous. And also constant and miraculous is George, who comes to the library every single day. 
And after a while, Tama realizes that George is coming to the library, not because he's reading all those books, but because he likes her. <laughs> and so, um, you know, they develop a relationship and they do ultimately get married and um, they get married and have a, a baby um, in the prison camp. Wow. And the, the, the beauty of the story is partly in that it is true, but it's the true story of the grandparents of Maggie Tokuda Hall. Her grandparents met and married and fell in love um, in a prison camp. But the thing that really stuck with me that made me want to have that choose this as a book was that um, it's it's a real story about the humanity behind the Japanese internment. And in a way that I think doesn't get told very often, there still aren't a lot of books. You know, there are some, um, and I've read a number. Um, uh, George Takei has a really great graphic novel. Um, there have been some good picture books about, you know, the, um, the, the one about baseball a number mm -hmm. of years ago. Um, but there's still, it, people don't talk about it as much, about right. this, this point in our history. And this book does a, an amazing job talking about how people were taken from their homes and put in these camps, but they still were human. They still right. had lives and, and um, they had jobs and they had relationships. And at the end of this book, um, there's this lovely double page spread that shows books and cups of coffee and journals and show oh, to April. Yes. And I will try I to take it. a picture for oh, our Instagram beautiful. page. Um, and about, um, you know, kind of the memories of that time, but Tama had a journal and, and this is actually a quote from her journal. And she said, the miracle is in us, as long as we believe in change, in beauty, in hope. Um, and so that, you know, there's still hope even when things are really terrible. And um, I think that's especially important mm -hmm. today. Always, right. um, unfortunately, you know, things, bad things happen. Um, we're recording this right now um, in a time when Russia has invaded Ukraine and um, watching those stories coming out of um, Ukraine is really hard and heartbreaking. And yet I, I saw a photo this morning about a baby that was born in a oh. bomb shelter. And wow. the, the, you, know, you can focus on the terribleness of the circumstance and the location, but it's still a new life, right? You know? and there's still hope and there's still courage. And um, this was just this perfect book to kind of encapsulate all that. Um, and Maggie Takuda Hall has a, a beautiful, brilliant author's note at the back that includes an actual photograph of her grandparents. Oh, and um, wow. just so lovely. And I think it's incredibly um, important book. And I, I would not be surprised if it actually um, is looked upon by awards committees in the future because the art also is amazing. Yas Imamura um, does the art and I think I said in gouache and watercolor. And you know, most of these camps were in deserts mm -hmm. in places that um, really didn't have a lot of, of green space. Right. Um, they didn't have a lot of plants. Um, there's a comment at one point in here, our page, where they talk about how the um, in the summer, it was brutally hot. In the winter, it was brutally cold. Rain in the fall and spring left mud around the latrines they all needed to use. And so that mud, that like color, muddy color mm. is throughout the whole book. And I know it's intentional right. um, and yet there's still so much beauty in it too. So oh, it does, it sounds, it does sound like beautiful mm -hmm. in a way, even though there's that heartbreak of, yeah. you know, what, what happened, just that the fact that that even happened in our country 
And I think that's why we don't talk about it a lot. There's a lot of people who just would rather believe that didn't really happen or it wasn't as bad as people might think. Um, But it was, yeah, real injustice. And um, you talked about humanity or just the, you know, the people in the camps were human, but it also showed a lack of humanity. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm moved just by you talking about it. I can't (laughs) wait to read it. I I feel like I should also say that, you know, I, I was a little skeptical about a picture book Mm, about grownups falling in love, but I think it's still written in an accessible way that kids will be able to enjoy it and understand it and find the beauty and hope Um, because everybody understands love in some, you know, it doesn't matter who the love is between, they understand love and and this book is about that. Well, and that that love produced a child. (laughs) That might not necessarily be true for every child, but Um, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to that experience or wanting that experience. I think it sounds beautiful. Um, So what's your book this week? Well, I'm kind of just going to cheat a little. (laughs) Talk about (laughs) two. See if I can do it quickly. April. But um, it's funny because a lot of times we have these similar themes and both of my books um, deal with uh, immigration from uh, Central and South America. Uh, so the first one is called With Lots of Love, and it's written by Jenny Torres Sanchez and illustrated by Andre, I think it's Salin, C E O L I N. He is Brazilian, actually. And um, I did get this as a review copy as well, but I think I got it sent to my house somehow. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it actually doesn't come out till early March, um, which is like this week. Yes, <laughs> but somehow I got it soon. But anyway, um, the there was a, a note in with the book from the author, uh, Jenny Torres Sanchez, and it says, I did not meet my grandfather until I was six years old. All I knew of him was that he lived in Guatemala and that there were barriers that kept us apart. When he was finally permitted to visit us in the United States, we became fast friends best friends. I often think that because I was so young and he was so old, we mattered little to the world, but so much to each other, which ooh, that just like tugged at me. Like I never really thought about those grandparent grandchild relationships like that. I yes. mean, I know they go beyond that it's a special relationship, but you know, that's really so true, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, And then uh, later she goes on to say, distance is hard, but it does not break the bonds of love. And the bonds between a grandparent and a grandchild are particularly special and strong. I knew that even then. So this is really uh, like a celebration of love, much like your book too, in particular between a grandparent and a grandchild, but also, as I mentioned, of immigration, but that there's also, you know, the the comfort of family. So sort of no matter where you are, Mm -hmm. who you are. And in this story, um, the little girl, Rocio, she has immigrated from, uh, doesn't say exactly where, but somewhere in Central America to the U.S. And she's really missing her abuela, especially, oh gosh, they talk about like all the different foods she used to have and it's making me (laughs) want some (laughs) of these things so badly. Um, Especially, you know, we know a lot of grandmas make some excellent food, but also her grandmother um, had a shop and she would make pinatas and it's the night before uh, 
Rocio's birthday and so she is really missing her her grandma and wants mm-hmm. wants a pinata and um she goes to sleep makes a wish and in the morning there is a gift from her family um that is still in Central America and it does include some food from her grandmother and um, a picture with the whole family, but then also a, a star pinata that she hangs. Um, so it's really just a lovely story. It's, I think, just again perfect for anyone. It's not. It's not just strongly an immigration story. It's mm-hmm. relatable to to really anyone, and it's also just so beautifully illustrated. Um, and I wanted to show you this spread and I'll take a picture of this one. It might be hard to see on screen, but um, in this picture, uh, Rocio's sleeping. Her blanket is made of like, looks like different words cut out. Um, I know one of them says, good night, <laughs> buenas noches. Um, but there's also these stars and the moon that are, they're like glowing off the page. They do. No, yeah. Like, I don't know there's how, light behind them. I don't know how the author did that, but it's really beautiful. And all the colors are just sort of like these. It's it's like jewel tone, but even deeper somehow. They're really beautiful. I think they're just stunning. Um, and yeah, so it's a, just a really beautiful book about immigration and family. Um, well, I feel like love, yeah. so many families can relate to that. I mean, my kids yeah. live 3000 miles away from mm-hmm. one of their sets of grandparents and mm-hmm. we see them, you know, last time my kids right. saw them was 2018. Wow. So, yeah. You know, that, that happens to a lot of families, especially right. these days. Right. And so I think, yeah, it would be great in your library collections, make a great gift. Um, yeah, really. I'm promoting that book. Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but likewise, same. So this is the one I'm sneaking into because when I read that book, I was reminded of another one I had received. Um, this one is actually a galley. So it's like all, when you get a paper, a uh, picture book galley, it's, it's all over the place. I've completely Very taken confusing. it apart. Yeah, there's no staples. So, um, but um, excuse me, this one I got in the fall and it really stuck with me. And I knew I have a basket for the books I want to talk about on the podcast. And so it had been kind of sitting in the basket. And when I read with lots of love, it really reminded me of this one, which is called My Two Border Towns. And it's by David Bowles and illustrated by Erica Meza. And uh, in this story, every other Saturday, a young boy and his father, they run errands across the US-Mexico border. And through the text and the uh, illustrations, it shows the changes as they happen. So there's like more Spanish and less English on the different uh, signs. Um, As they arrive in Mexico, there are all these like colorful market stalls out in the street. So it just looks different from uh, the town that they live in. And so they do their errands, they're shopping for groceries and um, the father goes to the pharmacy they get different supplies the boy plays with his cousins but on the way back as they go back over this bridge um leading back to the border there are all these people camped out on the edges and the father has explained to his son uh previously that they are refugees from the Caribbean and Central America um and he explains and this is from the book, the U.S. says there's no room, and Mexico says it can hardly look after its own gente, which, which I'm, gen, oh, he, well, that's the word we, the show, gente, so yeah. after their own, I'm people, assuming, 
own people. So, you know, this, that's a really complicated um, concept, but he, you know, is able to explain to his son, like, mm-hmm. this is the reasons why, you know, people are saying why they're here. Um, and many of the people are like entire families camped out on the bridge. They're, they're refugees. They have no place to go. And um, so on the, these errands that they do each week, the boy always brings a special bag. He's made a friend on the bridge and he um, gives the bag and it has like bottled water and comics. And the father um, gives the mother medicines that he bought in Mexico. And then the story ends with the boy just sort of who never has a name in the story, but he's sort of imagining um, and waiting for his friend to be able to come to America and, and play with him. And it's, it's just such a wonderful book because it deals with this complex issue, as I said, but on a child level. So it explains it. I think the way a child can understand, but it's still very honest. It doesn't excuse, you know, sort of what's going on. Like at one point, the father talks about how it is unfair since our country does have room. Um, But it also highlights how individuals can have this impact. So they are giving, you know, giving actual you know, things that help this family, but also their, this empathy and kind of highlighting this issue. And the illustrations are just lovely. Um, I think they just really show that, um, it's not like a stark difference between the two towns. They're kind of like sister towns, but it shows like very expressive people and, really colorful like it's really vibrant but still soft um, and that's because they're made with watercolor and the author I should say David Bowles grew up in Texas and this mm. story is sort of based on his it experiences like um it was some Rio Grande okay and um so he would do that with his family when he was younger and he does it with his kids now so they you know can visit family and have that experience and then the illustrator is from Mexico Erica Meza Um, and as I said the pictures are really beautiful they're vibrant but somehow soft and so I was looking because I'm like I know it's watercolor but I'm always curious to see what else yeah and I just have to read this because I loved it it's just the art for this this is at the beginning on the um the verso the art for this book was created using um gouache watercolor pencil and digital gimmicks (laughs) (laughs) so I love that because you know nowadays it's like like I remember when I worked in a public library if if there was digital art you know when I was at the beginning yeah it was like the late late 90s early 2000s like there really was this thought of like digital Mm -hmm. art or computer generated art was not art and I have to be honest, some of it wasn't very good. So I could kind of right. see where people thought that. And In the early days. Yeah. yeah. And now I think it's more like, I do think people have come to appreciate that mm-hmm. um, and that it's not always one thing. And that's why yeah. I looked for that because I was curious, like it looks very much like watercolor to me, but I knew there could be other mm-hmm. elements and I was curious. Um, yeah. As, so as an aside, I'm pretty certain Beagle by Dance and Ted was entirely digital. Oh yeah. And, and it, it won, won the Caldecott. Caldecott. Yeah. No, it's very cool. But yeah, I hope people, you know, take a look at these and pick them up, especially, well, I mean, all three of these books. They, and are, they all go together. They're all, we yeah. Do, how do we do this? I don't know. Our brain is very <laughs> much in sync 
but yeah, just there, I would say all three are just like beautiful stories of love and compassion in really tough situations. Yeah. And these are not easy things, but we also know that kids and families are going through them, as you mentioned, like today. Exactly. Right. There are kids in, in all types of situations and also kids who aren't in mm-hmm. these situations, who, right. who may be watching the news or learning about something in, in a class. And right. it's important to have stories that talk about things honestly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think on that note, um, <laughs> we can move on to our next yes. thing. But yes, yeah, yes, I yes. totally agree. So we have a listener question from our good friend, Lindsay Forbes. She says she's a longtime listener, first time emailer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she had a question she wants to get our opinion on, which is what do you wish was part of the curriculum in library school? And I love this question. I think it's really interesting. And I haven't been in library school in a really long time. I graduated in 02. So that's exactly 20 years ago. And I do have some thoughts. I don't know exactly, you know, what's being taught at the moment in all the library schools, but I know you have a little bit of insight into that. So I wondered if you wanted to start. Sorry, my phone was ringing. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't been in library school in a while, but I do teach in a program that is um, training pre-service school librarians. It's not library school per se, but um, could they get a degree in education, but it's a focus of libraries. And so um, our group of instructors has talked a lot about what do library staff need, especially school library staff. And that combined with my, my work supporting youth services librarians all over the state, I actually am now involved in this project, which I I don't know all the details because it it starts next week, but it is an IMLS um, funded project called the Future of Youth Public Library Education. And there's a a group of us who are going to be co-designing recommendations for what youth services librarians should learn. That's excellent. Yeah, that's super exciting. And so from my perspective, I will say that, you know, I kind of fell into librarianship in some regards because I I got stuck educationally and knew I wanted to work with kids and books and reading. I had a master's degree in early literacy, um, technically language, reading and culture, but wasn't quite sure I wanted to be a teacher. And so I ended up kind of taking a, a gap year from school and working in higher ed and then ended up in library school. And my undergrad background is in um, communication disorders, speech, um, speech therapy, and which also included language development. And I have to say that as a children's librarian, I used my undergrad and my first master's degree a bit more than at my library science mm. degree. You know, li- my library um, uh, education included a lot on, you know, specifics of of librarianship that you wouldn't get elsewhere like cataloging or um you know how to do a reference interview when somebody asks you a question how to find things but it also was a snapshot in time you know is there early in Mm -hmm. internet resources and so a lot of my reference class was focused on print resources that Mm -hmm. I don't ever anymore (laughs) um my youth services class was focused really on the literature Mm -hmm. um, and a little bit in programming but it was again a snapshot in time and and I feel like the you know a lot of what I know about librarianship I learned on the job or I learned in these other programs and there are things that I I tend to teach to 
librarians and library stuff now that I think should be in, in library schools, stuff mm-hmm. like how do kids learn to read right? <laughs> or reading, you know, reading development and, and, and in parallel with the books that are designed for kids at that age. Yes. I mean, it's my number one thing that I, I want library staff to come out of school knowing is text complexity mm-hmm. and, you know, what levels I'm doing quotes, reading <laughs> levels are, um, and how publishers develop them and how to help kids find books that meet their reading needs. And, and what goes into that, that it's not just about the, the text on the page, that there's a lot that goes into it. So that definitely a big one. Um, and the other one that kind of goes hand in hand, but um, applies to not just early ages, but also teen stuff. I know you would agree with this, is that we get a lot of, would get a lot of questions about behavior, mm. human development, what's mm-hmm. normal, you know, questions that like, oh, there are all these teenagers that are hanging out in our space and they're really loud. What do we do about them? Mm-hmm. Like, but that's normal. <laughs> right. So, you know, I think if library staff, when they're taking courses could learn about normal child mm-hmm. and teen development behavior, especially behavior in groups and social behavior, that would go a long way to helping them be better librarians and library staff. Because the thing is like, people think about librarianship as the materials and the books and the information, but it's not right. Being especially a youth librarian, it's about interacting with people. Right. Oh, absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. And I think that's really interesting because, um, uh, I had jotted down a note when you were talking about reading development. I, I wish, I wish I had known that as well. That should be like required, not even just for people who want to be children's or school librarians. Um, but right, also, right. Cause it's not yeah. just, just little kids. Yeah. Um, but you know, child development and what that process is like. And I, I had taken a couple of classes in, as an undergrad and that helped me greatly along with all my years of babysitting, uh, but also working with families, like, yeah. Uh, and it's sort of related to my learning topic that I'll get to, but <laughs> that, we don't just work with kids, you know, and I was mm-hmm. so focused on children when I worked in a library and yeah, their needs and their collection. Um, and of course, you know, you get all ages up to, you know, grandparents and you get people without kids that come in, but, you know, I really felt like oh, I'm here for the kids. And um, I think there should be more emphasis on the whole family because yeah. it's really important because yeah, we, we work with people, um, not necessarily things. And I had asked Lindsay what I was curious what she thought too. And in a similar vein, she, she had said like some sort of course in sociology or anthropology. So giving people a way to understand the various groups and communities that they're going to serve. People need to get outside their own perspectives, as well as understand the various factors that can influence a person's development and situation. I think the problem is that all those master programs focus on being experts and resources, which is exactly what you're talking about. So I hope, mm-hmm. I hope Lindsay doesn't mind. I quoted her on that, but you know, I totally agreed with that as well. I'm like, that is so absolutely yeah. true. You learn, you can learn the resources when you get to work. I exactly. mean, you should have, you can and have a basic to your space too. Yeah. <clears throat> and time, right? Yeah. Like in two years, the, you can have totally different. different resources. Um, so I hope I, again, like I don't, I'm not tapped in necessarily 
um, if anyone's teaching a program or is the dean of a library school program, um, I would love to hear more and and um, yeah. have a, and have just a chat. To, but one other thing I I forgot to include, but Lindsay's comment about anthropology sociology, I think, goes into cultural competency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and understanding how, who you, the people are in your community, who right. you are as an individual, mm -hmm. how that's the same or different from the people right. that you serve. And then understanding how to be respectful of the, the cultures right. that exist in the space that you're, you're working. Right. Uh, incredibly important. I think mm -hmm. some people pick it up or some people naturally right. do it, but right, it's right. not, it's not the norm and it's definitely right. not taught in library school. Right, right. Well, and my thing that came up immediately when I saw Lindsay's question was this idea of neutrality. Oh. And I realized that <laughs> this could be its own, <sighs> its own complete question, could be its own hour yep. podcast or more. Um, but, but I thought of this because it's on my mind a lot. And, mm -hmm. um, and I had actually written uh, this question on my Facebook page a while back. I'm actually just very curious, like, is this still taught in library school? Because it was hammered into yeah. me in my classes. This idea of neutrality, for those who don't know, is that libraries need to be neutral. Um, you can't, you know, take any kind of stance on an issue. You have to sort of have this balanced collection of, you know, so if you have a book, uh, about some, you know, liberal idea, you have to have a book on a the same idea from a conservative point of view. And it's really that idea of the one-to-one -one that really mm -hmm. frustrates me. Like, yes, I agree. Like you need to have a, a broad collection. You want to reflect right. your community. You want to serve their needs. You certainly don't want to like shut particular people out, but this example that I had on Facebook actually didn't even have to do with the collection. And that's the other thing. I don't think neutrality always means collection either. Like people are so focused on like, well, you know, again, that one-to-one, -one, you have to have this book, you have to do that. But this example is actually a program that the teens wanted at the library on climate change. And the teen librarian was told no, because it's a political issue. And I think that's wrong. Like <laughs> I just think, first of all, it's not a political issue. It's science. And um, the teens wanted it. So now you're shutting off this, you know, access to the teens and serving their needs. And I just think it's ridiculous in the name of neutrality. And I think a lot of times um, people at upper levels who probably were in library school either before or around the same time as me also had this idea drilled into them. But it's also a scapegoat excuse oh, absolutely when you don't want to deal with it, something uncomfortable you can sort of say well people will complain mm -hmm. uh, yeah you're worried people complain you feel you know and again yeah I do think you know I had to unlearn it so I get that like I get that that is something you're taught and it's an ideal it's this mm -hmm. you know it kind of is a lovely ideal right like that we get to be neutral we get to say all voices are heard all points of view blah 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 but in at the end of the day <laughs> In 2022, this is not flying. Yeah. And I think it's actually a dangerous philosophy to teach in library school. Here I am on my soapbox. Um, because you do, you get, you start to become, um, you know, this institution that is not going to recognize really important issues. And actually to say something like climate change is political, I think that's really dangerous. That, right. You know, that can really... Um, have a bad impact on your community and like right now what's going on I mean there's always something going on 
but even though I'm not even <laughs> working in the library loop right now, but uh, hearing about the hoopla? digital, yeah, digital collections <laughs> and Hoopla and Overdrive, from what I understand, yeah. have you know, you know, books that deny the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and these are in collections that library staff have no control over, right? Like you don't yep. get to go in to the back end of Hoopla and add or remove things. Again, I think is like a really dangerous area, and it's like in the name of neutrality. I don't know who works at these places who blown overdrive, but I'm sure they employ librarians. I'm sure they believe they know the tenets of librarianship, right? So they're going to go by like, well, we have to have all sides. We have to show, you know, you know, if we're going to have a book about the Holocaust, we have to have one about this or who knows, maybe it's not even that maybe they just, well, but the, and that's pick from a list. And it's, yeah. Because <clears throat> the thing is like, you're like, okay, well, so we have 10 books about the Holocaust and we need to have equal coverage. So let's look for 10 books against the Holocaust and so what do you end up having is these really terrible conspiracy it's a false equivalency there Mm -hmm. there isn't there is no equality there that's right there aren't two sides of that issue right and and I think there is this conflict that comes up because you can't you can't you know say that this is an argument for neutrality but then also have another you know, tenant of librarianship, which is to have collections that are authoritative, uh, you know, that are accurate, right? Like, you know, and I do think this was another thing that was, at least for me, being trained more as a children's and YA librarian, like looking at your informational books was very, very important, you know, that you're like shaping young minds, right? Like, oh, adults, who cares? They can make their own decisions. But like for children's books that, especially nonfiction, they had to be accurate, but I would even say it carries over into fiction. Like, I don't want to read a historical fiction book that, you know, the author did not do any research on exactly that period, you know, because as a reader, you're going to get the wrong idea. This is an issue I really would love to talk more about. I never really got an answer. You know, there was mixed on my Facebook about, is this being taught or not? A lot of people had, you know, it had been a while since they were in library school. You know, I, my, my take, what I'm getting is that it depends on the professor. Mm -hmm and where they stand and and whether or not they have this conversation and Mm -hmm. the school. Right. I don't know if it's in a curriculum or in particular classes. I know that many staff members have a lot of leeway with what they Mm -hmm. put in um, when they're teaching course. And, you know, for like a somewhat related example, my children's lit course, I added a diversity audit as an, as Mm -hmm. an assignment that wasn't originally part of what I was supposed to teach, but we, as a, as a staff, were looking for ways to build the idea of equity into our courses. And that was a good place to do it. So it really depends on the individuals who Mm -hmm. are doing the teaching. Right. I don't feel like there is like a, an over, and maybe this is what the part of the IMLS project that we're doing Mm -hmm. is to have this like big recommendation of these, here are the tenants that Mm -hmm. librarians should learn in school. Mm -hmm. And here are our recommendations, because I don't know that that's equal across the country or, I mean, obviously not even across the world, but like, so that everybody coming out with a degree has the same kind of ideas about what the tenants are. of Right. Right. It's interesting. Right. And then when you, when you start working, then it's also dependent on the organization you're you're working at. Your director, your board of trustees, your community. (laughs) There are a lot of layers. Well, this is a good, good question. That's a great question. And actually, thank I was, you, Lindsay. I was, yeah, thank you, Lindsay. And I would love for our listeners, we'd love to hear from you. What are your answers to this question? And 
you know, do you agree with us or not? Do you have other ideas? I mean, I think there's room for so many other possibilities. And we'd love to hear from you. And we'd really love to hear, like, if you live outside of the United States, Mm -hmm. what do you learn Mm -hmm. if you've gone to library school or or if you know somebody who has, what are, what is, what's being taught outside of the U.S.? We have a very narrow focus here and we would love to hear from you. You can email us at thispodisoverdue at gmail.com. You can also send us questions for future episodes and we will read yours out if, if we select it. We love your questions. So April, what are you learning about these days? (laughs) Uh, So I kind of gave a little hint about this earlier, about working with families. Uh, Right before I left, oh, you know, yeah, you know, because you took it too, but right before uh, I left MLS, I had started a course and I was lucky enough to be able to finish it. Um, It's Touch Points in Libraries, put on by the Brazelton Institute. So I know several people in our state and you and and Lindsay, um, took a similar course with the intention of bringing these principles, these principles and guidelines to more library staff. Uh, and basically what it is, is uh, using this touch points principles that were really designed for um, medical professionals and pediatricians on how to work with families and interact with families and bringing those principles to sort of the library space. And I think that that's excellent because as mentioned, like, you know, I'd taken a couple child development courses in my undergrad, but man, if library school was a while ago, undergrad (laughs) was a real long time ago. Um, And I do think it's just really important for anyone who works with kids to, to understand this. There were a couple of things that really stuck out to me that I want to share with our listeners. And uh, one is that child develop is not, mm, child development (laughs) and talking is not linear. Yes. Right. And so that actually, I do remember from my studies, or at least that's what I remember was that, mm. you know, you have these certain milestones and they come at certain ages. And in reality, the research shows that there are these regressions and these bursts and mm. that the reg- regressions are actually necessary for development. So I thought this was so interesting and so exciting. It also would be so comforting to parents and, and caregivers. Um, and they often occur when the child is learning a new skill. So your baby might be learning to walk and now all of a sudden they're not sleeping through the night anymore and they used to. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much like they're learning to walk and now they're crawling, you know, it'll mm-hmm. be, it'll, the regression may happen in another area that they've excelled in. When you think about, about it, it makes sense. Like their brain is probably just like, all right, I'm going to focus on this exactly. walking thing. Yeah. I don't have the energy uh, to like do that sleep thing, but then it'll come together again. Um, and that like disorganization is, and chaos are sort of part of development and they're really valuable. I thought, man, that's just so interesting, but also really reassuring (laughs) for life in general. This is a, like a a weird visual maybe, but when I was going through it and thinking about the touch points, um, so the concept of touch point is like going back and touching something, you know, Mm -hmm. like I never really thought about that before. (laughs) Right. I had this visual of somebody like, like a little kid with a belt around their waist attached to something that's like stretchy or bungee cord, Mm -hmm. but the bungee cord can get longer, but it takes time. And so every time the kid goes out and gets like further out to stretch it, the the bungee cord pulls them Uh, back a little bit and then they keep going and then it pulls them back. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Like in order to move forward, you still have to come back a bit sometimes. Right. I, I love that visual. Um, and then the other thing was from our last uh, session, 
and I just love this. Um, I, I never had heard this before. For preschoolers, preschool development, when a child is doing something like lying, cheating, or even stealing, that this is also a normal part of their development. And basically they're using their imagination when they want something so badly to be real that they'll do anything it takes to make it real, right? Including cheating, right? To win a game. It's just this, it's like an overwhelming emotion to them that they need to get through and that this would be their solution. So, right? Like you want something so badly, you would steal it. This actually happened to me when I was five and it's still one of my most like sort of vivid memories. I remember going to the store with my dad and brother. I think it was like a Kmart and I really wanted this Bonnie Bell chapstick. And it was the big one. They used to make this like mega size one that was probably like bigger than a highlighter. I mean, it was like Mm -hmm. a weirdly large uh, lip balm. Lifetime supply. I still have a lip balm problem, by the way. I don't know if they're related, but anyway, I wanted it so badly. It was great, great scent. And my dad wouldn't get it for me. So I took it. But because I was five and totally stupid, when we get out to the parking lot, I whip it open, you know, uncap it. I start like smearing it on my face. And he's just like, (laughs) what did you do? But he was really angry. And and he made me go back and then return it. And it was horrifying. It was terrifying and humiliating. I never stole again, which I think was his point, but (laughs) um, I think there probably could be better reactions because as I now know, that was me, you know, not so much like being greedy, but, but as manifesting your desires. Exactly. (laughs) If I was 10, it would be different. But since I was five and so technically a preschooler, but yeah, like, I think a lot of parents see that kind of behavior and they're worried like, oh my gosh, I'm like a little sociopath. Yeah. I'm raising a criminal. Yeah. They're already stealing. Right. They cheat and lie. Yeah. Um, But again, they're really just processing like a really challenging emotion and they just it's just this interesting thing too, though, that's related to like imagination and play. Mm-hmm. Like, I just really want this to be real. So again, to them, it's not just like, I, I really want that. It's just like, I really want it because I want that desire to be real and mm-hmm. not, not just to have the thing or to win the game, whatever. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, we didn't really get too much into like, so how do you talk to kids about this? Cause you don't, you know, you want to explain why something's wrong but you don't want to, again, like maybe scar them right, <laughs> for life. Them. But yeah, so I think, you know, I do think the understanding of it, like I just wish every every adult really knew this, knew some of these things about children would really alleviate so many fears, you know, between this and right. the regressions, you know, would well, alleviate a lot of concerns people and for, have. And for people working in a library or who work with young children or who just, you know, maybe they work in a bookstore with young children, like it can explain a lot of, the behaviors mm-hmm. that they see. It's like, you know, a kid who grabs a book off the shelf and happens to have a pen and they're like, oh, I'm just going to draw on this book. Right. They're going to like add to the story or make the story better, but it's, they're not being bad Right. that this is part of development right. and there, you know, are ways to approach it and that are not just right. pure punishment. Right. Absolutely. And how yeah. about you? 
um, it has nothing learning. to do with child development, <laughs> although I, I, it does have related to it. That's child. not a requirement. Okay. Well, I just feel like we are on a theme. You're just like so <laughs> simpatico this time. And well, I that, was, that was unintentional. My eldest has a science project work on that they had to bring home, which meant I had to be involved because otherwise, how do you get a 12 year old to do an assignment <laughs> over school vacation week? Um, <laughs> but so this project was really cool though. The task was to build a thermos. Oh, interesting. That can keep ice cold for 10 minutes. Hmm. And so there were learning stages, you know, she had to read a bunch of stuff about what goes into a thermos, um, how are, how real ones are designed, like in insulation and heat dispersion and, you know, all these different aspects. But the, the part that I was involved in was gathering a bunch of different materials and then letting her run with it. And so mm-hmm. I learned so much over the process. I mean, I always knew that like, you know, I, I have this, this insulated cup right now, insulated, right? Insulated. Mm-hmm. So it has something on it that's keeping stuff in. And I always knew that some of them had air or, you know, they talk about vacuum mm, seal, right. but I didn't really know what was happening. So my kid created this thermos with a glass jar that she then wrapped in aluminum foil. And then she put bubble wrap around it. Mm-hmm. And then she put felt over that. And then she put another layer of aluminum foil. Interesting. And the, the bubble wrap was, it was air because on the outside of what you want to um, maintain the temperature helps prevent the, um, the heat from moving from one space oh, to another. Okay. And then the foil reflects heat out. So, and she even was very specific on what side of the foil she used, like the oh. shiny side out. And then on the other one, the shiny side was in to like bring in. Yeah. And this was all her. I just watched it. And then she put five pieces of ice in this thing, covered it with foil and left it for 10 minutes. And when she took the foil off, the ice had not melted at all. That's awesome. That is so exciting. uh, My mind was blown. I I love that. Yes. Because the the thing was like, tell us, estimate what percentage of the ice had melted. So I totally like was expecting, you know, water with some ice sure, in it. yeah 10% melted or we took the yeah. ice out and then turned the thing upside down and no water came out wow that is I, so I just, cool yeah so then of course I like went on this like rabbit hole and I went and looked up like videos about thermoses and I found this really cool video it's actually from 2016 mm-hmm. on this YouTube channel called what's inside which is this guy and I don't know what his background is but he construction or something I, I think but um just like sciencey things and then his kid who looks like he's about 10 and they cut things open to see what's inside them and so on this particular episode mm. they were doing um yeti mugs you know those, oh, like, I was totally gonna expensive. bring up yeti because they're so expensive yes. now now you know you just need bubble wrap and what they find it, inside it really was just space so wow. it's like this um stainless steel that I think is like a specific kind of like mm-hmm. amazing stainless steel um two layers with a layer of vacuum sealed air well it was not air so it's space between the two mm-hmm. and then um on the bottom there was a bigger pocket of space than there were, were on the sides of the cup and I guess that has something to do with it yeah science science That's so cool <laughs> I love it So Christy, what are you loving lately? I'm so excited to talk about this. I've, I know I've already even like gushed about it to you, but um, I want to talk about Abbott Elementary 
Oh, I've heard great things. Oh, so it is a half hour sitcom on ABC. It's starring um, Quinta Brunson, who is also the creator. And um, she plays Janine, who is a second grade teacher at a Philadelphia elementary school, an underfunded Philadelphia <laughs> elementary school, which actually most elementary schools, I feel like are yeah. underfunded. Um, it's in a mockumentary style. So kind of like uh, the, the, characters play to the camera as if Uh, there's a a crew kind of filming um, everything and it mostly focuses on the the second grade teachers of the school and their classes Um, the principal is awful like she just doesn't know what she's doing she doesn't care she's just really bad at her job Um, one of the um, teachers is this like veteran kindergarten teacher who's just wonderful and perfect and hysterical Um, But I, so there's so many things I want to say about it, but um, I really just love it. It is hysterical. It is um, relevant and um, tells like really important truths about class and Mm. um, how teachers are treated and how school education in this country is funded about students and expectations of certain students versus others, um, both based on race and um, perceived intelligence. Um, there are just so many different layers to it. And it's this 22 minute episode at every single time I watch it, I'm like, I want more. I want this episode to be longer. I need it to be longer. <laughs> and it, it's the first time in a really long time that I'm watching a show as it's on, you know, I, I, right. I think I've gotten so used to watching shows that are, have a whole season out and I can sit and watch the whole season. Right. This one, I, I started watching maybe when the second or third episode was out. Um, I actually um, heard about it from um, the reviewer and uh, influencer, um, Absolutely Lovey. Uh, she does um, cultural reviews and I follow her on uh, Facebook and she just gushed about it after mm-hmm. like the second episode. And I was like, okay, I'm in, <laughs> I'll watch it. But now I have to wait every week right. for a episode. It's, it's torture <laughs> um, because I, you know, it's just so perfect and all the teachers are just really quirky in their Mm -hmm. own individual ways and um not always really great at their jobs um because either they're like they're fairly new or they're you know they don't have the the support that they need um but they're really relatable and it's a warm and wonderful show and uh Quentin Brunson um who like I said is the the creator um she actually gotten her start as a um creating digital shorts Oh, um, you know, she, yeah, she did a bunch of like internet stuff and she ended up being a staff writer at Buzzfeed or creating oh. um, Buzzfeed videos. And um, I just love that she's, you know, has a different trajectory than so right. many other people. Yeah. And now she's the showrunner for this really fabulous show. And I was reading an article about it in uh, the Hollywood Reporter recently. See if I have it up that I can see it. Um and they were saying that, you know, this was just kind of the first time in a long time that a show is doing so well right away, like as it's on. Um, that's oh, not a yeah. thing that happens anymore. Like so many shows right. and they even referenced Schitt's Creek, which is another one that mm-hmm. I've loved in recent years, how it really didn't start taking off until a second or third season. Right. And that's true of a lot and of a things lot now. Of word of mouth. Streaming. Right. You know, people, it takes a long time for people's word of mouth to be like, oh, have you heard of this show? Yeah, there's right. this, there's two seasons on Netflix. Right. You can go watch Catch it. On. Yeah. And um, 
And so that it's really um, just doing an amazing job. And what's especially like um, powerful about it, or like really great, I personally love about it is that most of the cast is black mm-hmm. too. And so that we don't see that happen right. a lot anymore with like it being a show that everybody's sitting down and watching. And it's not about mean the, like the, um, I was going to say mainstream America, but that's not really true. That's like not a good way of saying it, but like the, the white American ideal, right. Right. That's tends to be the stories that are on sitcoms and watched week to week. Right. And so I love that this is about this school in downtown Philadelphia and, and really not pulling any punches and Mm -hmm. making commentary about the state of education in the country today. Oh, I think that's great. Yeah. You told me about it first and, but then I've heard from other people that are really loving it, um, including my sister-in-law and it's on Hulu, right? It is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can also watch. So it's on ABC every week. I have no, I think it's on Tuesday nights, okay. but you can also watch it. We watch it on Hulu. Well, it's already on my list, but I'm going to start watching it. And what do you love? <laughs> well, I actually am going back to something that's not new for me, uh, but I got a newsletter recently that kind of reminded me of something I love. Uh, which is the Maza Museum. <laughs> oh, yes. And I'm going to call it the Maza Museum because it's spelt the same way as my last name. And maybe technically it's Maza, which also maybe is technically how you say my last name, but we just go to Maza. <laughs> so the Maza Museum, for people who don't know, is a picture book museum. And when I first heard about it many, many, many years ago, I was like, I cannot believe, like, I'm a children's librarian and there is a picture book museum called the Maza Museum. My last name is Maza. Like, that is just amazing. Like, I need to go there someday. And then one day I got to go because I went to a conference and you were there too. I was. (laughs) That was in Ohio. And I rented a car and I went (laughs) for the day. I just had to go. And it's a lovely museum. I think they've done a little bit of renovation. So it might look a little different from when I went, but you know, just this beautiful little space with uh, illustrator uh, artwork, um, much of it at the height of a child so that they could you know, get a good look at it. Um, Just a really interesting place. And when I went, um, it was a little bit busy. There was like some sort of meeting going on. So I just kind of walked around, enjoyed myself and, and then went out to my car and I texted my husband that I went and he said, did you talk to anyone? Did you tell anyone your last name? And I was like, no, (laughs) no, I'm not going to do that. And he convinced me because he's like, you need to go back in there and say something. So I sheepishly went back in and I said something and I am so glad I did because it remains like a very fond memory. The woman working there at the time couldn't believe it. She was, she just thought this was like the best thing ever. She ended up giving me a personal tour. She then like started just giving me all this stuff from the gift shop, like bookmarks and stickers. And I mean, it was just, I felt like a celebrity and there's no <laughs> connection by the way, no, no family connection at all, but it was just so sweet. And it was just really fun. But also because she was giving me this tour, I got to see like the staff area. And what was great about that was that when they would have illustrators come to do, you know, talks or whatever programs, uh, the illustrators would draw on the walls. So in the, yeah, in the walls of the office were all these like Sharpie, uh, drawings. And I got to see some from illustrators I recognize, and it just was really, really neat. Uh, but what I wanted to talk about today, a little bit of, um, something fun, the Maza Museum has some virtual 
programs. They, they oh, do, cool. uh, yeah, they do a virtual story time. But what I think our listeners might really like to see are the uh, illustrator talks that they do. If you go to their Facebook page, that's where you can view the recordings. And there's uh, tons and tons of them. You can also sign up for future ones and watch them live. But, you know, if you miss any or you want to just go back and watch some. And the one I watched yesterday was with Floyd Cooper. We talked about, yeah, we talked about on our award special episode. And that recording was from about a year ago. And he just was like, charming was just the word that came to mind. Even through like a recording on Zoom, he just came across as charming. He was funny. Um, He seemed so sweet. He just seemed genuinely like pleased to be talking to a digital audience. They didn't Mm -hmm. even really see, but he just seemed really happy. And I did not watch a lot of the videos, but it seems like they all end with the um, illustrator drawing something on camera. And so he did that and it was really cool. And then he kind of did this doodle and encouraged people to copy the doodle, but then make that doodle into their own picture. And you could do that. And then you could like tag, um, uh, the Mazda museum on their Facebook page. And I thought, Oh, this is so fun. This is so That's great. Lovely. Yeah. And I just thought this would be great. You know, our listeners who love illustration, you can check out the Mazda museum's website. We'll put it on the show notes. They have all sorts of stuff coming up. They have a summer Institute. I don't know what that will be like this year in particular, but it's this hidden gem that I don't think a lot of people know about. If you like uh, children's book illustrations, you will love well, learning I just more about this. Remember, I didn't get it to go to that museum. Uh, we were there um, for, I think it was AASL. It right? was, yep. Um, the American Association of School Librarians. And I was not working at the same organization as April at the time. But April and I were walking through the convention center at one point and saw, she saw one of the staff members from the Maza. And oh, right. Well, the, I was just, told to find him. Right. By that lady. <laughs> was like, sure, I have this box of art. Right. I will just pull it out for you. And <laughs> right. he did right there. And so the, the first thing he pulled out was an oh, that's original right. from Frog and Toad. Yes. And I just like my jaw dropped. <laughs> Not yeah. only do they have such cool collections, but the staff are so amazing. They were they so nice. Yeah, I do. Remember, that was, yeah, we were walking in the hall because what they had like a pop-up exhibit at the convention center, which I did end up going to too, which I was glad because those were things they had, you know, brought from the museum mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have seen when I visited. But yeah, I think we crossed paths with the, the head curator. Yeah. Yeah. He just stopped and started, you know, they were putting stuff away and he was like taking this stuff out. Oh, sure. Sure. I'll just show um, it all to you. But right especially because I think you had, yeah, you hadn't had a chance to see that. Um, and just one other thing about that, the frog and toad thing that I remembered that I loved was that there had been two covers because the original cover wouldn't fit the Newberry metal oh. sticker. So Arnold Lobel had to draw another one and so it showed the difference between the two and how there was this white space for the metal and I'll just never forget that I thought that oh, was that's so, so intriguing cool. yeah and that would be really different now like I think you know the editor could just have yeah. the art team take care of that yeah. but I love that he like hand painted a new cover oh my gosh <laughs> a little fun fact art. for the day yeah yes. <laughs> well thank you everyone for joining us today we hope you enjoyed our episode Please remember to rate and subscribe. Um, That's the only way that other people can learn about this podcast. Share it with your friends, anybody who likes books. You don't have to work in a library or a bookstore. And follow us on Instagram, which is this pod is overdue. And then also email us at thispodisoverdue at gmail.com. 
Thanks for listening to This Podcast is Overdue with Christy and April. Bye, everyone. Happy reading. Our podcast music was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Alidu, the podcast maker. Find your own free podcast music over at thepodcasthost.com slash free music. I hate that. I don't think that was good. It was fine. Okay. <laughs> Gonna fix it. That was so stupid. I'm Chatty. not <laughs> <laughs> we love chatting with each other. We love each other. <laughs>